Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you do have your Bible with you, please find the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, and we are in chapter 2. And some of you are going, finally, chapter 2. Yes, we have made it to chapter 2, and we are going to make it through 12 verses this morning. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a black hardback around you, either in front of you, or if you're kind of along the wall, there's some uh, right there on those windowsills. And uh, our passage that we'll be looking at out of Mark will be on page 786 of that hardback Bible this morning. Now, we have an account here this morning that um, Mark is telling us, and this is a story, an account that gets told a lot into uh, Sunday school, like children's Sunday school areas a lot. It's been preached over, I, I know, many times in my lifetime that I've heard uh, from the pulpit, and what I think happens a lot of times in those teachings and in those, those sermons, I think the main point gets missed a lot, that the main point of the text kind of gets kind of pushed to the back, and we kind of just talk about other things, little details in the story, uh, such as things like maybe these four friends and this paralyzed man, or Jesus and his miraculous ability to heal this man which are important points, but it is not the main point of the story. Those teachings, I think, are missing the main point of this text and is missing the point of the whole book of Mark. So as we look at this chapter, chapter 2, and this story that we have this morning, we cannot forget that there was a chapter before this and there was teachings before this. And what we saw last week in chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, we ended on the conclusion that Jesus in cleansing the leper of that, those verses, those five verses there, it is concluding with the point that Jesus is one, the only one, who can cleanse sins. Because again, the skin disease that was there, it was thought to be, any skin disease was representation of sin in, in somebody's life or just a representation of sin as a whole. And so as somebody had a skin disease, there needed to be a cleansing and as Jesus cleanses this man that seems to have what we would say as leprosy, he is radically changed and different because of only one person, and that is because of Jesus. He is the one that cleanses sin. Now, I told you last week again that the passage that we will look at today, it gets very specific and very detailed in the fact that this is true about who Jesus is, that he is the one that forgives sin and cleanses sin because he has this authority. So, Let's not waste any time, and let's jump into chapter 2 in verse 1 through verse 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were seating, uh, sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. Now, let me remind you again about Mark's writing of this gospel. It is not in any kind of chronological order, but what we have from this text here and the way it falls from chapter 1 to chapter 2 and whenever it was originally written, it didn't have those little numbers there, but it flowed. And Mark has put this in place and it does fall chronologically, but we also have to understand that there probably are a lot of other things not recorded for us that fall in between chapter 1 into chapter 2. Again, Mark wrote with a purpose, with an intention in his writing, not just to give you a chronology of Jesus' life, but to make a point about who Jesus is. And these 12 verses, again, are pointing to a fact of who is this man? Who is this one that Mark has already claimed to be the Son of God, that has claimed to be the Messiah, he's claimed to be this Christ? And again, chapter 2 is, again, pointing at this fact. So Mark, he places these events, this event specifically, after chapter 1. But again, there's probably a lot of other things that happen in between there. So what is the point that he's trying to make about who Jesus is? Well, let's again rewind back to chapter, or in here, to chapter 2, starting in verses 1 and 2. We see that there's a familiar thing that's already happened uh, in chapter 1 to chapter 2, and that is that Jesus is very popular among people. That whenever Jesus shows up, there's a huge crowd that comes flocking to him. Now, Jesus goes back to Capernaum again, where we saw that happened in in chapter 1. And all these people now show up again because they hear that Jesus is there. And they hear that he's at this house. Now, the house is more than likely, again, Peter's house. So, they come back. Jesus comes back. And all these other people seem to show up again. Why? Because what we saw in chapter 1, there was many people that were healed. Many demons were cast out. And as we saw there in chapter 1, that Peter goes looking for Jesus one morning because Jesus has seemingly disappeared, and he finds him, and he tells Jesus, everyone is looking for you, and what is Jesus' response? It's time to go. It's time to go somewhere else because my purpose is to preach. These people that were showing up, I think they, again, were not there to hear the teachings of Jesus or the preaching of Jesus, but they were there to see something happen, something miraculous happen, which did happen. It did happen. Almost everywhere Jesus went, something miraculous did take place. But this is not at all what Jesus wanted to be known for. And we saw this from chapter 1, and we see it even here in chapter 2. But notice what verse 2 says about what Jesus was doing when he came back to this place. When he was in this house, it says that he was doing what? He was preaching the word to them. He was preaching the word to them. Why did Jesus leave before? Because people didn't want to just They didn't want to hear a message. They want to see a miracle. Let's see what this guy can do. Let's bring him somebody else. And I'm sure in this scenario, people were looking for anybody and everybody that had any kind of illness or any kind of ailment to them, like a hangnail, like, oh, I bet Jesus can fix that too. And they're they're bringing all these people to Jesus, like, oh, he's got this little wart. Why don't you take care of that, Jesus? Jesus didn't want to be known for just these miraculous things that he could do. His purpose was to preach and to preach the good news. And this is not, uh, his priority in life was not just to do miracles, but to preach. Now, the Greek word that is used here for this word that Jesus was preaching is the Greek word logos. Now, it looks like logos, 
So if you get that in your mind, it's logos is the word that the Greek uses. Now, logos in this context, it does mean a word, but it means more than that. The context is meaning that it's a message, a specific message, or it can also mean the sayings of God. This word that is being preached was likely uh, what Jesus was known for teaching, what he was known for preaching, which we already saw in chapter 1, verse 15, which says, the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Again, that was a summary statement by Mark of what, Mar- what marked Jesus' life and his teaching. It was that, that verse right there. So I assume, and I think it's right for us to assume, that Jesus is not only just teaching scripture, but he's teaching this message specifically to these people. Which again means that he was already there before and he'd already taught this same message and now he's teaching it again. What does that say about humanity? We don't always get it the first time, do we? So maybe you've been coming to church your whole life and you've been hearing sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon and then all of a sudden something makes sense to you that never made sense before. And it's because of God's goodness and his grace to you that he has finally revealed something to you and I hope maybe God will reveal something to you today. But you have to be listening to hear from God. The, the Christian faith, this faith in which we claim, in which we, we, we sing about, we preach about, the Christian faith that comes by preaching and the hearing of the logos, this message. This logos, this message we carry, it is the word. It is the word of God. It drives us and it should be what determines what we do. It should be helping us and pointing us in the right direction of why we do the things that we do. Not only as a church, but as individuals. Christians are people of the logos. We are people of the word, people of this message. People that are about a message of God, not just miracles of God. And I think this is important for us to comprehend as well, is that we're not just about supernatural things and, 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 and just wanting to see mystical, magical things take place in our life, but we're about a message. This is what we should be about. Now, there are supernatural things that happen, and I, I believe still happen, but we are not to be just centered in and focused on those things, but we are to be about the message, because that's what Jesus was about as well. Now, what this means for us is that we must open our mouths. We, we must teach people what the message is. What is the logos that Jesus was teaching? We must share this message. That is what Christians do. Christians repeat the message. Just like Jesus is repeating the message, we are to repeat this message. And the message is not just generic good news of, hey, good things are happening, but no the one that was promised by God, by the sayings of God of old, they have now come true. It, it is now here in front of us. And this is what Jesus taught about himself. He is this good news. He is what we have been looking for. This news that he brings is, is the fact that sinful people can now be restored to God by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is his righteousness And it is this logos, this message in which we share with people. And whenever we share the logos with somebody, the word with somebody, we are sharing Jesus with somebody. Now, while Jesus was teaching here in verses 1 and 2, we see that there are some highly motivated vandals that show up. And they show up in verses 3 and 4. And you probably know the story. Again, if you had flannel graph in your Sunday school room or whatever, uh, the... 
the, the little house that's there, and there's probably an outside staircase that went to the roof, and there was, uh, you know, sticks and, and clay and other things that made up this rooftop. And so people could go up there. They'd use it for prayer time, uh, for company, just kind of a patio kind of an area. So these guys, they went up on top of the roof. There's four of them with this fifth guy that they bring with them. And what do they do? They dig a hole, more than likely, in Peter's house. Now, again, imagine this scenario. If you're sitting there in the house, it's super crowded. Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden, the roof starts to cave in. It probably created some sort of commotion or panic. No, it doesn't really say that in the text. It doesn't really point to that. But that commotion pales in comparison to what Jesus is going to do. It pales in comparison to what he is about to say. Now, these new characters that show up in the story... We have this man that is paralyzed, and we have these four faithful friends. And again, a lot of time is spent talking about who these people are, which there are some important things here, which I do want to talk just for a moment about. Because what we have with these men, there are some interesting things that take place with them. For one one thing is that all of these men were exercising some sort of faith, some sort of faith, whatever that generically means, Now, whether that be that the man that was being carried and willing to be carried to Jesus, he was exercising some sort of faith, but also these four friends, they were exercising some sort of faith in Jesus. And let's think about both of these just for a moment. This man that was paralyzed, he was incapable of doing anything to get to Jesus, wasn't he? He was incapable in his own ability to come to Jesus. He was at the mercy of those around him. He was at the mercy of his friends He was someone who needed to be helped. Wouldn't it be completely foolish to say to this man that is paralyzed, hey, you know, there's this guy named Jesus down the street. If you would just get down there, he could probably do something about your situation. Wouldn't it be foolish for somebody to say that to this man? Not only would it be foolish, it would be downright just mean to say this to this guy. He was incapable of going anywhere. This man was at at the mercy of others. And it was only if somebody took pity upon him that something would happen because he is just left where he's left. He cannot go anywhere. It's also a very real reality that you know people like this man. That you know people that probably need help in a physical sense. I think we witness this even here on Sunday morning, that we have people that need help. Need help in and out of the building. Need help to their car. uh, Need help to find a seat. We have people that are that are not as capable maybe as you are. And so this is a great opportunity for us to exercise what these four men are doing, which is helping others. But there's something else, something else that we cannot ignore, something else that we need to demonstrate what real faith in Jesus looks like, and that is that there is also a reality that you know people that are incapable spiritually. You know people that are not just handicapped physically, but maybe they are handicapped spiritually. They are unable to see the true state of their soul. They need your help. These men, they could not heal this man. They knew that. They understood that. But what they could do, they could get this man to the one that could heal him. We cannot save anybody. But we can help others come to the one that can save them. And how do we do this? Well, we can answer questions. We can have very long conversations. We can be inconvenienced because of the questions that they have. 
Also, we can help deal with the hurts that maybe they've experienced, whether by, by Christians individually or even collectively as churches have hurt people. Maybe you've been hurt by people or by churches. And we keep sharing what God's Word has to say about their condition and what God's Word has to say in the promises that are there about what Jesus Christ will do. We all know people that are spiritually paralyzed. They are incapable. We cannot fix anyone or heal anyone, but we know the one that can, don't we? And so we bring people to the one that can heal. We spend time with them. We care for them. It takes effort. There is at times a lot of emphasis put on the faith of these men. Both parties were exercising some sort of faith, but it would be wrong for us to draw a conclusion as to why these men found healing for this man. Was it based upon either of the party's faith? Well, he was not healed because of his faith or because of his friend's faith. Now, maybe you say, well, Pastor, doesn't it say in verse 5 that Jesus saw their faith? Doesn't that mean that the man was healed because he saw their faith? Aren't people healed because of their faith? No. I believe that would be a wrong conclusion because of what we see happen in other places in Scripture, namely John chapter 5. We have a very similar instance that takes place with a paralyzed man. And it happens at the pool of Bethsaida. And that this man that was there at this pool, he had no faith at all in Jesus. If you read the story, you see that Jesus asked him the question, what do you want? He's like, I just need somebody to put me in the pool. And then Jesus heals him all of a sudden. The man exercises no faith at all about who Jesus is. All he has is faith in water, faith in a pool. But Jesus decides to heal him anyways. So what does this teach us about why Jesus would heal anyone or someone specifically? It means that Jesus does what he wants, and he heals who he wants. It's for his purpose of why he does it. It means that Jesus' power to heal is not constrained by man's ability or inability to believe, to have faith, he heals despite faith. Both scenarios end with these men being healed, and both men now, in this moment of being healed, they believe, they see, they understand, they trust in the power of this man, Jesus, even though the guy at the pool doesn't even know who he is, doesn't even know his name, but he says, that, that, that guy, that's the one that had authority over my illness. So let's not be misled into thinking that we have to have a certain amount of faith in order to have healing in our life, whether that be a physical healing or a spiritual healing. And if you, if you have thought for maybe too long that, well, as soon as I clean some stuff up, as soon as things get right, as soon as I get healed enough, and then God will do something in my life, that is not at all what the Bible teaches. It teaches that God, in His mercy, in His grace, He will do something. He will heal. Jesus is free to heal whoever He wants. And whenever he wants. So the next time that you encounter somebody who needs healing, whether it be physically or spiritually, do not believe that their condition is too far gone for Jesus to do something about it. Don't write somebody off and say, I don't know, it's just, you know, I've, I've tried before. They, they didn't even recognize that I was trying to help. Jesus can heal. Whatever the condition is. He can heal, and he does heal, and by healing, it is not controlled by people. 
It's only by his desire and for his glory in which he heals anybody. It is all about him. And that's what this text is about. It is about him. It is not about these four guys or this one man. It is about Jesus Christ. And this is where all of this story turns quickly in verse 5. It turns quickly and focuses quite clearly on Jesus alone. It says there in verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is likely not what any, anybody was thinking. Whenever this guy gets lowered from the ceiling and you know, kind of the hush through the crowd happens, I'm sure nobody was thinking, you know what, Jesus is going to forgive this guy's sin. I don't think anybody was anticipating or thinking that's the next step. Now, Jesus is always working like this throughout the Gospels, isn't he? If you, if you know your Bible, you know that he is always saying something or doing something that does not fit inside of our reasoning or our logic. This always challenging that. This statement, it was obviously shocking to everyone in the house, especially the educated ones, the scribes. Look at them in verses 6 and 7. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Have you ever had a moment where something happened or somebody said something and you, you didn't react instantly, like with words, but your body language is just speaking volumes, right? You've been married. This has happened to you, right? You said something and then instantly you're like, hmm. Probably shouldn't have said that. And you see from their face or their body language is like, oh, that didn't go over well. I think this is what's happening here with the scribes is that their, their mouth is closed, but man, their body language is speaking. How dare he say this? Their response to what Jesus had just said, it was not an unreasonable one or illogical one. Their question means who in their right mind would say something like this? They had good theology. They did. They really did. They had good theology. We know this by their second question, which is what? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's good theology. That is right thinking about who God is. But the problem that we have here is that they were missing who Jesus really was. The Messiah was never thought to be one who would or could forgive sins by the Jews. This was never one of the thoughts that crossed their mind about who the Messiah, who the Christ, who the anointed one of God would be. They didn't think, oh, he's going to be one that forgives sin. Even though I think we see from the Old Testament that, yes, he, he is one that was going to do that. This is why the scribes have such a problem with what is said here by Jesus. They knew that only God could forgive sin. They were right in that. The Old Testament speaks of God being the one who forgives sin and no one else. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. The scribes believed that Jesus had overstepped his boundary. They knew that God is the one that forgives sin. They knew the priest wasn't the one that forgave sin. 
It wasn't even the sacrifice that was doing it. It was God only that, forgive, that could forgive sin. And why is Jesus talking like this? This is blasphemy. Now, please, do not be deceived into thinking that if you were a scribe sitting there, you'd go, oh, no, guys, it, it, he, he is the Messiah. Don't think that you'd be any smarter than these people. These people were brilliant in their understanding of the Old Testament. Don't be so conceited or arrogant to think that you wouldn't fall into this trap of missing who Jesus was. They were greatly offended, and Jesus is greatly offensive today when we tell people that he is God. They knew that forgiving sins was reserved only for God, and by Jesus claiming to forgive this man's sins, he was claimed to have the same authority, equating himself to God. That's what Jesus was doing. It is because of this claim by Jesus that it is foolish to believe that Jesus was merely a good prophet like Islam claims him to be, or that Jesus was merely an angel like the Jehovah's Witness claim him to be, or that Jesus was a little g God like the Mormons like to teach. All three of these religions would be in, in stark contrast to what the Bible is sharing with us here. Because the only conclusion that we could gain is that from the Old Testament, all three of these religions would be in contradiction to what the Old Testament has been teaching about who God is specifically and what Jesus is claiming here. Jesus is claiming something that is only for God. Only for God. This is why these scribes had such a problem. In order for Jesus to be accepted by these other three religions that I've mentioned, he cannot be who he is claiming to be here. He has to be somebody different. And this is why all three of those change who he is. He is God in the flesh. There's also another thing that happens here in this text that only God can do, that only God is known for. And it is what we see in verse 8. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew their hearts. It says there in verse 8, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Only God knows the heart. Only God knows your mind. Only God knows what's happening in your mind right now. I don't. I mean, maybe it's evident in some of your body language, whether you're sleeping or not, or whether you're looking over there or at your phone or whatever. Like Some of that's obvious, what you're thinking. But God really knows your heart. He knows your intention. He knows your thoughts. Let me show you this from Scripture. 1 Kings 8, 39. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. That's scary. That's scary to know that God knows your heart. Jeremiah 11, verse 20. But... O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. God is the only one that knows the heart. God is the only one that can forgive sin. So what do we have with Jesus? We see here Jesus claiming to be able to forgive sin and also claiming to know the heart of these men. What evidence is there to prove this, though? What evidence is there? Because, again, if, if the story ends here, then we can be like, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't God. Maybe he is the Messiah, maybe he's not. But what happens in the rest of this? Look at verses 9 through 11. We see the evidence, the proof of who Jesus is. Jesus speaks, verse 9, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, 
your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that they are examining him. They are looking for a proof or an evidence. What is the proof, Jesus, that you can say these things? If you can't back this up, it is blasphemy. And what is, what is the punishment for blasphemy? It's death. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows they're looking for evidence. And so he asked them a rhetorical question in verse 9. Which is easier? Which is easier? To say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Which one would be easier for you to say to that man? It's rhetorical, right? You don't have to answer that. Neither one are easy. Both are impossible without who? You can answer this. God. Both are impossible without God. If God is not involved in the forgiveness of sins, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no healing for this paralytic man if God is not involved. Both of these are impossible things without God. There's no way for someone to be forgiven unless God is doing it. And there's no way, even today, in all of our technology, for somebody that is paralyzed to get up and walk. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus says that he is going to prove to them that he has authority to forgive sins. He's going to prove that he has authority. But notice how he refers to himself here. This is important. Why does he use this phrase, son of man? Son of man. Why does he not use a phrase like, to prove to you that I'm the Messiah or the Christ or even the son of God? Why does he choose not to use those terms and he uses son of man instead? This title that Jesus chooses to use is a, is a title he loved to use. He used 81 times in the Gospels to refer to himself. That, that term is used to refer to Jesus 81 times in the Gospels. Why? Well, in using this term, it is crucial for our doctrine of who Jesus is. Being the Son of Man means that Jesus is identifying himself as human, first of all. That he is saying he is a man, a legitimate human being. But also with this, he would be one that would be, um, in identifying himself as human, he's also saying that he's going to do what the Old Testament said that he would do, which would be to serve and also to suffer and also to die. This is what a man had to do. He would be one that would fulfill what the Old Testament was saying. But this term that Jesus uses here to describe, him, to describe himself is also connected to an Old Testament passage in Daniel 7, which is really, really important because it's the only place in the Old Testament that identifies in, in the realm of who the Messiah is to this term, Son of Man. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The one who Daniel sees as like the Son of God, 
he is identifying as this one that is going to come and the one that is only has the rightful um, rights to these specific things which are only rightfully given to God, which are his dominion, his glory, his peoples, his nations, his languages. All of these things are going to be given to this one that is like the Son of Man. It is said that his dominion will be everlasting. It will not be destroyed. This term, Son of Man, that Jesus uses here connects us back to who is this Messiah. Again, this is the only place in the Old Testament that it's used in Daniel 7. All the other places are just kind of in reference to a human being. But Jesus used this term. This term, I think, to explain to us who is the Son of Man, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. But also with that, in using this term, Son of Man, it's also giving Jesus some cover. Giving him some cover to do the things that he needs to do in order to live the way that he needs to live in order that he can go to the cross and that he can die an atoning death for sinners. Because he's identifying himself as a man. I am a man. But he's also the Messiah. I think what would happen here is as these scribes would hear this term son of man, they would have to think back, what is, what is the what does the Old Testament say? Of course, they wouldn't say the Old Testament, but they would think back, okay, what do the scriptures say about who is the Son of Man? And maybe by God's grace, some of them would identify out of Daniel 7, oh, this is who the Son of Man is. He is the Messiah. Now, if you look at verse 11, Jesus proves that he is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. And how does he do this? He proves it by the power that he demonstrates. He proves that he has the power to forgive sin. He has the authority over these things. Now notice how Jesus heals this man. Notice what he doesn't do. Notice that Jesus doesn't come over to man and then hit him in the forehead. Okay? He doesn't take off his cloak and then wave it over the man to heal him. He doesn't take out a little napkin that he had that he prayed over you know, a couple days ago and then lays it on the man. What does he do? He speaks words. His words have power. Again, in the idea of the logos, the power of the word. We must speak the word. Words of healing. Words that change people. This is not some, well, we need to blab it and grab it kind of theology, but Jesus speaks to this man. He speaks to this man's illness and it is gone. And he does it because he prove something about himself. It's only his words that he uses. There's no other tactic. There's no other strategy that's used. It is only his words. In the last verse that we have here, we see the results of what Jesus commands and says to this man. He, he tells him in verse 11, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He commands him to do these things. Verse 12, it tells us what, what Jesus was claiming about himself. It tells us that there is proof now for what Jesus was claiming about himself of being the one that forgives sin and also that he is the one that knows the heart of men. And he proves it by this man standing up. Now, I, I just imagine, and you can imagine with me for a moment, that this man laying there in his incapacitated state, his inability to do anything, where he came in by the effort of four other men and they could do nothing for his condition. That, and we don't know how long he couldn't walk. But all of a sudden, this man pops up 
not only is on his feet, but has the strength to have balance and to know how to walk again. And he takes up his bed and he leaves. This is power that is only found not in hospitals or in physical therapy, but is found in the power of Jesus. Which is easier? That's a great question. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Jesus proves that the impossible things that are with man are possible with God. So what does this mean about Jesus? You know, he's God. This proves he is God. They were all amazed. They began to glorify God. This is the only appropriate response to the power of Jesus Christ. This amazement and praise to God. They, were, they said this in verse 12. We never saw anything like this. Why? Because there never was anybody like this. There never will be anybody else like this. Jesus was and is the Messiah. He was and is the Son of Man. Jesus was and is the Son of God. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. Why does Jesus heal this man? To make a point. To make a point about himself. That he is the one who heals. He is the one who forgives sin. He makes the point that the reason why he came was to forgive sinners and to heal those who were spiritually paralyzed Not only did Jesus do this, but Jesus does this today. He does this today. It's not over, friend. If you are not a believer this morning in Jesus, and you've never repented of your sin, you've never humbled yourself before God, then please understand that Jesus is the only way for your sins to be forgiven. Jesus proves it here in these 12 verses. I mean, you can argue with me, but I think it's hard to argue with the text here. Jesus proves it. Just think, if you were sitting in that room and you watched this take place, what would be the only logical conclusion, the only reasonable conclusion about who that man is? He has to be. He has to be who he's claiming to be. That is God. It doesn't matter how terribly paralyzed you are or how incapable you are of doing anything right, and maybe you feel like, man, just my whole life has been a screw-up, everything has just been wrong, and I just need to clean some things up, and then, then I'll get right with God. That is not how this happens with Jesus. His power was not, you know, I'll, I'll help you a little bit, and then you have to kind of learn to walk again, you have to have the strength again, you've got to do all these things again. It was instantaneous. If you see there in verse 12, he uses this word immediately. Immediately. This is what the power of Christ does. It changes you. It changes you. You cannot change yourself, and your pastor can't change you. Your, your chairmate, I just said cue partner, um, they can't change you. It's only Christ. He will forgive you. If you humble yourself before God, turn from your sin, and trust in his righteousness and not your own, you will be saved. You will be saved. Christian, let me leave you with this thought. You know people who are paralyzed. Physically, but spiritually. You know these people. Maybe you live with them. Maybe you're neighbors to them. Maybe you work with them. Maybe you go to school with them. Let me ask you this question. What are you going to do about that situation? 
What are you going to do about that? You're going to walk on by and say, you know, you should probably find your way to church someday. Or, or maybe you just make an effort one day and say, will you go to church with me? I would love to share the gospel with you. When, when would you have time to do that? We take the time to have a conversation. We take the time to talk. We take the time to answer questions. We take the time to hear their hurt. And then what do we share with them? The logos of God. The word of God. And beautifully written in John chapter 1 is that the word became flesh. The word dwelt among us in verse 14. You can know him. You can know the word. And we share that with somebody, that they could have hope, that they could be cleansed, that they could be healed, that they could no longer be paralyzed. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Please, think on that question. What am I going to do about this fact that I have friends, family that are paralyzed spiritually? And, and maybe this question is helpful too. Do you care enough to do something about it? We say we care all the time, but do you care enough to do something about that situation? Let's pray. God, in, in your goodness, in your word, you, you clear things up for us about who you are. You clear things up about who Jesus is. Lord, I know we, we live in a, a world of confusion, that there's so many voices trying to tell us, oh, no, this is who Jesus is, or that's who Jesus is, or, or no, we've all misunderstood who Jesus was. God, your word is so clear. Help us not to be deceived by, by fairy tales and by things that are just not accurate at all. God, I pray you would help us as believers that we would grab a hold of this fact that we have a God that has saved us, that has restored us completely and fully and that we are now supposed to walk. We're not supposed to go home. We're supposed to tell people about who Christ is. The same logos, the same message in which Jesus preached, we preach. Father, change us this morning. Change us in who we are, whether that be as an unbeliever, that we be regenerated and brought into the family of God for the first time, God, that as a believer, we have wandered, we have strayed. God, cleanse us, restore us. And it's all because of Christ that this can take place. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.